This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Peter called Stand Firm in Grace. So, it has been a while since we finished our series on the Gospel of Mark. We took 43 sermons to go through that book. We really dug into that gospel, and it was an awesome year together. And over the last few weeks, we've been dealing with a number of uh, different and interesting and curious little side trails, but I have been eager to roll up my sleeves again and really dig into another book of the Bible. And I hope that however long God gives me to minister In this congregation, that what we do over and over again is just dig into the Word of God with depth and see what the Lord God has to say to us. Because frankly, as I'm about to read the scripture, this is the only time in the service that you can be absolutely sure that God Himself is speaking to you. And what I have to say afterwards has value only insofar as it arises from the scriptures. And if it doesn't, you may safely ignore it. This is the nail, and everything I have to say is simply meant to pound that nail into your heart so that the Word of God really becomes something that enriches your own soul. That's where the power and the glory is. So we're going to turn to the first letter of Peter, and we're going to take eight or nine sermons that should take us through the summer in this lovely and encouraging little letter so full of grace and so full of the gospel. It's really an awesome little book, one of, my favorites, one of my favorites in the New Testament. I hope it will become yours, one of yours as well when we're through with this in August. 1 Peter is an interesting and timely letter because the apostle is writing to Christians who are scattered and kind of homeless and rootless. They're living in a hostile world where people are not happy to have these Christians, these Jesus worshipers around. And that is deeply disturbing and unsettling to these Christians. And Peter writes to tell them, as he says in chapter 5, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And we also need to hear again and again, this is the true grace of God so that we can stand firm. It is a great thing to run. It's a great thing to leap and dance. It's a great thing to walk. But there is also something heroic and noble about simply standing firm in the grace of God. That whatever comes against us, we do not stumble, we do not falter, we stand firm on the rock that is Christ. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it and keep it open during the message. 1 Peter chapter 1, we are just going to meditate on the first 12 verses this afternoon. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. The very earliest depiction of the crucifixion of Christ is not found in a mosaic in a church or a beautiful painting or some elaborate icon. It is a piece of graffiti that was discovered on a wall in Rome. It's a figure of a crucified man. It's a man, but he has the head of a donkey scratched on him. And underneath, it says, Alexa Menos worships his God. Long ago, there was some believer in, in Jesus, Alexa Menos, and he had some neighbor, some co-worker, who scrawled this hateful, mocking little graffiti on the wall. And down through the centuries and around the world, Christians have been surrounded by people who are not happy that they submit to the lordship of Christ. And Christians have been mocked and hated and despised as their brothers and sisters even now are are now throughout the world. And Peter writes this letter to Christians across a wide area in what is now the country of Turkey these five provinces of the Roman Empire. And this is a huge area, and it's massively diverse. It doesn't include the more populated Greek cities along the south. This is the vast interior region to the north and west of the Taurus Mountains, where there were many different languages spoken, and where Latin and Greek were spoken only in the big cities by the Roman administrators. And it's hard to figure out exactly how the gospel came to these regions, We know in the book of Acts, in the story of Pentecost, there were Jews from three of these provinces who heard the gospel and no doubt went back to their towns to share with their neighbors and their families about this Jesus who had risen from the dead. But even that is a little too small to account for these churches that somehow, by the time Peter is writing in the year 60 or thereabouts, in Rome shortly before he dies, how on earth these churches came to be across such a wide area. And there's a commentator, Karen Jobes, who has a very interesting and quite plausible theory. The Roman Empire had a plan for these five provinces in particular. Because they weren't Latin or Greek and they were far from Rome, 
As an empire, they needed to kind of bring their own Roman culture and values into this large area. And so the Roman scheme was, let's plant colonies. We're going to take small cities, and we're going to dump a whole bunch of people from the city of Rome there, so that they, and retired soldiers and so on, so that they can be little bastions of Rome and spread Roman culture and values and, above all, loyalty to the emperor throughout this region. What the Romans would often do, because Rome was a massive, stinking city, crowded, full of collapsing tenements, is periodically they would just scoop up large groups of people and dump them on some corner of the empire to achieve this strategy. And we know that in the mid-50s, about 15 years before Peter wrote this letter, the Roman emperor expelled a large group of Jews from Rome. And the historian Suetonius tells us this was because there was some kind of disturbance being instigated by a man named Crestus, Crestus with an E. And many historians think that this Crestus is actually a garbled reference to Christ, that as Christians came in the synagogues and the gospel was spreading, there was a lot of uh, conflict and arguments, and the Roman Empire was like, you know what, we're not sure quite what is going on, we can't have this in our city, we're just going to dump these people in the fringes of the empire. And so this is a conjecture, but a very plausible one, that many Christians were taken from Rome and just transplanted into the middle of modern-day Turkey in some remote town or village, and there you are in a city, and there's your family and maybe one or two other families from the church in Rome, and you're in a place where you don't know the language, you don't understand the customs, and no one is very happy to have you there. That may have been the situation of these Christians. But even if it was not simply because these people from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds were now following Jesus, they had therefore made themselves as if they were foreigners and outsiders to those around them. And the Apostle Peter addresses these Christians as exiles. It's translated as, but it would be better translated as resident aliens or even expats. And I think most of us know the difficult feeling of living in a city, in a culture, where we don't understand 90% of what's happening around us. We don't really get the values of this place, and it's an uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? You're never really at ease in this city, and you're always a bit on edge. You always have to be on, and everything is kind of a struggle every single day. And it's an amazing feeling after being here for a while when you go back to your home culture and you go in the grocery store, you're like, wow, everyone speaks my language. This is incredible. And I can understand everything that's being sold here because that's not what normal life is like as an expat. And our own experience of rootlessness and homelessness here can help us identify with these Christians to whom Peter is writing. Because simply as followers of Jesus... They were misfits. They fit very awkwardly into the cities and villages in which they resided. And they didn't speak the language of people's hearts. The loyalty of Christians was deeply suspect because they were worshiping this Jesus as Lord instead of the gods of everyone around them. And they would have felt as Christians uncertain of their identity because everyone else is doing something different from yourself and everyone else is looking at you like 
you're the weird one and you're the awkward one. And in fact, Christians here, this was before a time of official persecution. Christianity was not illegal. People were not being thrown to the lions yet at this stage. But Christianity was being viewed as something, something antisocial. There's something deeply wrong about these Christians. There's something un-Roman about them. Just like many Christians today are made to feel that to be a Christian is somehow un-Chinese or un-Russian or un-Indian or un-Canadian, this is exactly how these Christians were made to feel. You guys don't really belong here. You're outsiders, and no matter how long you live in our city, you are always going to be outsiders. And it was their loyalty to Jesus Christ and his lordship that put them on the edges, on the fringes. You know, becoming a Christian does not make all your relationships easier. It's going to make many of your relationships more difficult and more tense. Because Jesus came not to bring peace, but a sword. And brother is pitted against brother, and sister against sister, and there are divisions that loyalties sadly cause. And here are these Christians experiencing ostracism and discrimination and shame. And I don't know what the situation is like in your own country. There is a wide variety represented in this church. And some of us in our home countries experience official persecution and the threat of physical violence. But even those of us from more tolerant Western countries are experiencing the time of toleration is coming to an end. And Christians are looked upon as hateful and bigots and not really the kind of people that are welcome in our societies. So to some degree or another, this letter is for us. And Peter writes to encourage and strengthen these believers in the grace of God. Because they are exiles and they are part of this dispersion, this scattering over the world. But the most important thing about them is that they are elect. They're not just exiles, they are elect exiles despised by the world, but loved and chosen by God. This is the strange paradox of being a Christian. Because God goes into the trash heaps and picks out people who are rejected by the world. The weak and the poor and the despised are exactly the people that God wants in his own family. And it is amazing that all of us who are Christians can just pause and reflect and enjoy the fact that God has always wanted you to be part of his family. Is that not a glorious, comforting truth? God wants me as part of his family. By the sheer, strange, inexplicable mercy of God, he has chosen me. And long before my own choice of God, before my own act of faith, is the choosing and loving act of our Heavenly Father. And that is obviously a deeply humbling truth, because it's due to nothing in myself. And yet, there is something incredibly honoring about that fact, that God has placed this value upon me, whatever the world says. When we were in Orissa, we met... Uh, a lovely brother in Christ named Abraham. 
I'm sure his smile is rising before your face right now. He was just this lovely older gentleman, and he had followed Jesus for a long time. And he told us he was at a feast, he was at a wedding, surrounded by Hindus in his village, and he just bowed his head to pray and thank God for his meal. And the guy sitting beside him said, wait a second, are you a Christian? And he's like, yes, I follow Jesus. And the man picked up his plate and moved away from him, from Abraham, in disgust. And Abraham only smiled, and he said, it doesn't matter because I am a son of the king. We are sons and daughters of the king, and God has chosen us. He wants us as part of his family, and he has gone to incredible lengths to make it so. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Our names have always been part of the plan of God, and our names will always be part of the plan of God. And we were elected, we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Our names were known by God, and they were loved by God long before we ever knew God or loved him. Long before we were ever created In fact, we were in the heart and mind of God. And that's where our security rests. And then we were chosen, Peter says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. And this sanctification is not referring to like a long process of growing in holiness, like we often use the term, but it means a consecration. Like the priests and the Levites in the Old Testament were set aside from common and profane things for the worship of God in his temple, So every believer here has been set aside by the Holy Spirit for the worship of God. And if we had the eyes of faith, if we saw one another the way God sees us, we would see each other clothed in white linen. And if we were to paint a group picture, every one of us would have a golden halo behind his head, sanctified and made holy by the Holy Spirit. And this is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The Spirit has set us aside to submit to the Lordship of Jesus for obedience to him and to be sprinkled by him as our priest and Savior. That is our destiny and high calling as Christians. Obedience, but only obedience with sprinkling. The cleansing, purifying blood of Jesus Christ that enables, him to follow, enables us to follow him as Lord for the long haul. And Peter's wish for these people is, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And Peter is writing this as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is not his own private, weak, half-wish. This is an announcement from Jesus Christ, the risen one, over these believers and over everyone who reads this letter. Jesus Christ is announcing Grace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And Jesus' word is always performative. It's a word of power. And when Jesus, through his apostles, says grace and peace to you, there will be grace and peace upon our lives. So here we are, outsiders, yet chosen by the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you see that in these verses? All three members of the Trinity are deeply involved in our salvation. Now, here are these Christians in a horribly vulnerable situation. A life 
in exile meant that you were at the mercy of your neighbors. And they were far from Rome, far from the, at this point, protection of the Roman government. And the police probably were not too keen, too quick to get involved in protecting Christians. And there you were with maybe a family or two in your tiny little house church, surrounded by neighbors who were not happy to have you there. And imagine you'd wake up and you discover a broken window or some graffiti carved in your front door, and there would be many sleepless and uncertain nights wondering, how are we going to make it in this village? And imagine that stress and that tension year after year after year. The danger of mob violence and and terrible things happening to you and your children. It would have been very wearying and exhausting to live like this for years and years on end. That feeling of nakedness and vulnerability. And Peter wants to assure these Christians that they are far safer and far more secure than they realize. And he begins with this amazing explosion of worship. Our translations break it up, but verses 3 to 12, those 10 verses there, is actually one long, involved sentence in Greek. It is this profound alleluia arising from Peter's heart. And what we need most of all in times of danger and distress is worship. Peter begins by worshiping. And when we turn from our troubles, serious and desperate as they are, and fall on our face in worship, we find that God God recalibrates us. Have you had this experience? He recalibrates us, not necessarily with the first prayer or the first worship song, but God recalibrates us and he fixes our wandering eyes on God. And we come in to worship, whether it's here or in our own closets, feeling dislocated and alienated and confused. But then when we get before God, this dissonance, these jarring sounds in the backgrounds of our lives, they resolve themselves into this grand symphony of the greatness and worship of our God, and everything finds its proper place before him. And for Peter, everything is centered on the action of Almighty God, and he praises God for the great mercy that God has shown to all of us. All of this is a celebration of the surprising mercy of God, beginning with this, that God has caused us to be born again. Now, on their birthdays, Michelle likes to share with our children their birth stories, the story of how they suddenly and traumatically entered this world, and they like to hear the story of when they were born. But do you know what? They were completely passive in that birth. They did none of the work, really. They just appeared. And it's the same thing for us when we are born again. It's God who causes us to be born again. We can take no credit. None of us here, however strange and weird and involved your own story of new life in Christ is, for all of us, it is God who was the actor and God who made our birth not just possible, but actual. Jesus says, or John, the Gospel of John says that we're not born of the will of man or of human decision, but purely by the will of God. 
by the Spirit who blows where he wills. And none of us can take credit, but then again, none of us are without hope because God at any time can simply cause someone to be born again. And if you think about your birth, your birth determines almost everything about you. And if you were born to different parents in a different country, in a different socioeconomic class, you would be a completely different person. And perhaps some of us would love a complete, fresh start. And when we're born again in God, we do have a complete, fresh start because we have God himself as our Father. And this incredible grace and power of God now lives in us. And this happens, Peter says, this has happened to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter Sunday continues to have powerful effects throughout the world. The resurrection of Jesus did not end on that day. He is so full of the vitality and power and indestructible life of God that it surges forth in new births that are happening even as we are speaking. Death could not hold him, and death cannot hold anyone that God decides to give the new gift of life to. And so we have this living hope because of Jesus' resurrection, this sure, vibrant confidence of a future that God has for us. The wonderful thing about being God's child, his son or his daughter, among many, many other things, is that it gives you a right to an inheritance. Inheritances are not based on merit. You don't submit your resume. It's simply based on your family tree. An inheritance is a gift. It's a right based on a relationship. And if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, if you've been adopted into God's family through the work of Jesus, you now have a right to an inheritance. A right that God is very eager for you to exercise. There is something waiting for us. And already we've enjoyed so much good in the gospel, but most of what we have to enjoy is still to come. The vast majority of the gifts of God for us are still to come. We're still waiting for them. And this is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It doesn't matter if they burn down your house. It doesn't matter if they freeze your bank account. It doesn't matter if they confiscate your lands. What God has for us is beyond the reach of change or decay. Nothing can take that away from us. It's kept in heaven for us, in God's vaults, where no enemy, natural or supernatural, can reach. Kept in heaven for you. That is a very safe place. You know, I don't entrust my children with anything valuable. When they got their passports, dad holds on to those in a drawer. I, didn't, I don't hand them to my kids, and then when we get to the airport, I'm like, okay, guys, where's your passports? Because you know what? They would be covered in jam, lost in the backyard somewhere, torn apart, who knows? They can't be trusted to hold on to that stuff. And thank God, our God is not the kind of foolish parent who entrusts precious, valuable things to our jam-covered, sticky fingers. 
If your salvation was left up to you to hold on to, believe me, you would have lost it before you left this building this afternoon. I lose things all the time. I, I drove to the mall one time, and then I took the bus home, and I left the car there because I had forgotten it. <laughs> a car is a difficult thing to misplace, yet somehow, somehow, I managed it. I am a very absent-minded man who needs a lot of care and protection. Trust me. I lose stuff all the time. And thank God, my salvation is not for me to take care of. Because we would be very, we ought to be very anxious people if that's the case. God holds on to it. It's kept in heaven for you, Peter writes. And I love that, incidentally, that it's not just kept in heaven, but kept in heaven for you. It's not just a general bin where God says, okay, whoever manages to show up here can help themselves to this salvation. It's personally reserved and inscribed for you. There is a seat at the table of God that has your name carved on it. And no one but you may take that seat. Kept in heaven for you personally. And it's even better than that because Peter goes on to say, it's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The inheritance is being kept, but we too are being kept. The inheritance is kept for us, but we're kept for the inheritance. Because it would honestly not do you much good if your inheritance was safe in the vault, but you were lying dead in a ditch somewhere. We need God to guard us so we're actually able to show up at the end and claim the inheritance that has our name written on it. We're being guarded by the power of God. It is not a job that God delegates to anybody. No angel or even archangel is entrusted with guarding us. God himself guards us with his power. He shields us and protects us. And this word is used two ways in Greek literature. There's two kinds of guarding, right? You can guard a city so that no enemy can get in, can get in but you can also guard a prisoner, a prison, so that no one gets out. And God's grace guards in both directions, from enemies on the outside and from our own weakness and stupidity. For in the end, what is the greatest danger that would cause you not to show up to claim your inheritance. It's all the stuff in here, isn't it? My own sin, my own vulnerability to temptation, my own weakness, my own fear, my own despair, those are the things that cause me the most anxiety. And yet, God has taken me into protective custody, as it were. I noticed that when Jake had, uh, he had Mark yesterday at a little party we had, and he had the little guy safe in his car seat so that Jake could keep an eye on him and so the guy couldn't wander off with his fat little legs and do some kind of damage to himself the way children are always prone to do. They're always looking for something sharp or dangerous or steep, and parents have to watch them very carefully to make sure they don't destroy themselves. And God is that kind of parent who guards us against harming ourselves. And notice that strangely and mysteriously, we're guarded by God's power through faith. Somehow, God guards us through our own faith. 
We're not completely passive in this, being lugged around from place to place, but somehow in a mysterious interplay between the power of God and our own responsibility, our own faith is involved. Our faith is vital. And the whole reason this letter is written is to stir up our faith in God. Without faith, you will not make it to the end. But of course, the great thing about faith is that it doesn't trust in itself, but it looks outside itself to the power and grace of God. That's what faith is all about. I don't know how many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. You just go home this afternoon and read it. It's an amazing allegory of this journey of Christian from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And after he comes to the cross and is reborn, he enters into the interpreter's house. An interpreter has all sorts of strange and curious devices in his home, which he explains the meaning of to Christian. And against one of the walls, there is a fire burning. And a man is standing by the fire, sloshing buckets, bucket after bucket of water on this fire. And yet the fire burns brighter than ever. And Christian asks the interpreter, what, what is the meaning of this? How is this possible? And the interpreter says, ah, come with me. And they go around the wall to the other side, and there is someone with a bucket of oil pouring that on the fire. And the interpreter explains, this is what Christ is doing, pouring the oil of grace on the heart of every believer, so that no matter how many buckets of cold, deadening water are sloshed over us, Christ is always pouring his grace into our hearts. And it's behind the wall, interpreter says, because for the most part, we are never aware of what Jesus is doing in our souls. We are all very aware of the trials and temptations of this life. But secretly, behind the wall, Jesus is feeding new resurrection life into our souls again and again and again. Faith is a gift of God, and there is something mysterious and supernatural about faith that we cannot cause to be in our own hearts and that we cannot sustain, but that Jesus is giving strength and life to time and time and time again. And this guarding happens for this salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. The guarding and the watching and the protective custody does not end until the very moment our inheritance is in our hands. Now, there's so much detail here, but I just want you to to back up for a moment from these verses and reflect upon the fact that God is the one who writes the beginning and the middle and the end of our stories. Every chapter is from the hand of God. And we have our own role to play, of course, but it's God who is always holding the pen. And that fact is meant to give us tremendous consolation and security when terrible things happen in our lives. God is still the author. And though we do not understand the plot or the characters or when the climax and resolution of the story is coming, we know who holds the pen. It is God writing our story. 
And so, though we are vulnerable, far more vulnerable than we realize, yet we are guaranteed this living hope in Christ. Now, a shadow falls across the page because Peter begins to speak of these Christians being grieved by various kinds of trials. They're rejoicing, they're worshiping, they're celebrating the grace of God, but there are difficult and painful things in their lives. And these trials cause grief, pain, distress, deep discomfort. And even though they rejoice, these are not the kind of Christians, you know the kind of person who, no matter how many times you punch them in the face, they always bob back up with this fake smile, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. This is not what Peter is talking about. These are people who are weeping and who have a deep sense of loss and grief in their lives. And yet, through the tears and through the tragedy, there is this deep and mysterious joy in Jesus Christ that arises in them that can only happen by the power of this Spirit. And this is grief caused by the difficulties of following Jesus in a hostile world. It is a prosperity gospel, but the prosperity is not coming for a long while yet. And in the meantime, following Jesus is not necessarily going to make you richer, healthier, and happier. You are going to go through difficult things if you want to follow Jesus. But these trials have a purpose. They are purposed by God. You notice in... Ah, Let's see here. There's this little phrase, if necessary, in verse 6. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And that is a very important little phrase. Because God is the wisest physician. And he makes us swallow some bitter medicine at times. For which we are too small and foolish to understand its true purpose. God makes us swallow bitter medicine, but it is never any more or any less than what we absolutely need. If necessary, and only if necessary, God sends trials into our lives. A physician may have to jab a needle into your arm, if necessary, for a vaccination. But no physician goes on to continually jab for no reason at all. And our God is not that kind of sadistic physician either. He only does what is necessary for our own good. Because there is a so that in those trials. That's the purpose. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be proven in the end. These trials are like a furnace that burns up what is fleshly, in our own faith. What we thought was strong and powerful was just the boisterousness of our own personality or our physical constitution, and that burns up when difficult things come. But we also find that there is a true faith of the Holy Spirit that comes from the Holy Spirit in our own lives when difficult things happen, don't we? There is a resilience and a clinging on to the hope that God has for us that trial and only trial reveals. And the whole point is so that at the end, when Jesus is revealed, there's going to be praise 
and glory and honor. For us, from God, and from us to God through our lives. And that's only going to happen at the end of the journey. The journey only makes sense at the end. When we can look back and go, ah, that's why God did that. In the middle, things are confusing, and we are going to need faith because our sight cannot perceive what God is doing in these difficult providences. George Whitfield was an English evangelist of the 1700s, a great evangelist, as great as uh, John and Charles Wesley. And he was in a trip. He went up to Scotland. He was up there with a friend. They were riding on horseback to one of these Scottish cities. And as they were riding, they were overtaken by a highwayman, a bandit. And this guy took all of their money for their trip, which was, you know, it was really lousy. And they... They went on, depressed and discouraged, having been robbed. And then they heard, after half an hour, they heard a horse behind them. And lo and behold, it's the same bandit. And he says, give me your jacket to George Whitfield. And George had just bought a very nice jacket, and he took it off, and the bandit gave him his raggedy, very smelly, ripped jacket. So now he's been robbed twice, and he's wearing the highwayman's filthy jacket, and they go on their way, and as they're approaching the city, they hear the horse again. For the third time, they're about to be robbed by this bandit, and George says to his friend, there's no way I'm going to be robbed three times by the same guy, and they put spurs to their horse, and they make it into the safety of the city before this desperately galloping bandit can overtake them. That night, as George Whitfield took off this jacket and hung it on a hook, he felt something in there, and he reached in into an inner pocket, and there was not only the money that had been stolen from him, but all the money that this bandit had stolen that day. And it's just like that with the mysterious providence of God. We think that we're being robbed. God is actually inserting something secretly into our inner pockets. And somehow, through Jesus, even the losses we experience in this life At the end of the day, when we hang up our jacket, we'll discover that they were gains sent by God. And therefore, we rejoice along with these believers. We rejoice because we're already, by hope, experiencing the joy that's at the end. If my name is already written in the book of life, then I might as well already start dancing and singing and feasting. Because I will be one day, I might as well start practicing and enjoying that now. It truly is supernatural. And what's amazing to Peter, I think, was that here he was a man who knew and followed Jesus in the flesh for three years in the land of Palestine. And yet he's hearing reports about these believers who have never personally met Jesus And even though they haven't seen him in the flesh, somehow he has become the supreme love and loyalty of their lives. And they're willing to lay down everything to follow Jesus. Only a powerful work of God. And when Peter talks about us loving and trusting Jesus, he reminds us that salvation is not some impersonal transaction, but it is a living relationship with a real person, the risen Jesus himself. 
And because we know him and our future is secure in him, we can truly rejoice with joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. There is so much joy in this letter. And I wonder how much joy there is in your own life. Richard Wormbrand, the um, Romanian Christian pastor who spent many years in prison, said, I only ever met joyful Christians in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. But that should not be the case. And I wonder, I know we're all serving God, and we're doing our duty, and we're reading our Bibles, and we're praying. I hope and trust we're doing all those things. But how much are our lives marked by joy? Joy inexpressible and full of glory. How often do we stop and simply enjoy God and allow him to fill our hearts and fill our hearts to overflowing with the glory that is to come? And if not, why not? What are our hearts filled with instead? Are we so foolish as to find our joy and satisfaction in those things that are perishing and defiled and fading, which we're going to lose in the end. God wants us to be people who rejoice in the Lord always, as Paul says in Philippians 4. That should be the character of Christians. So even though we're grieving at these various trials, yet we can rejoice in the unseen Christ. And now quickly, at the end here, Peter talks about these predictions of the prophets of old who received these strange words from God about some coming figure, some Messiah who was going to suffer, and then there would be subsequent glories. And notice that pattern. As we go through this letter, we're going to see that Jesus is the pattern in his suffering and then glory. No cross, no crown, no grief, no glory. That's what it means to follow Jesus as his disciple. And so here are these prophets They receive this word from the Lord. They write it down. They look at it. Like, what on earth does that mean? And they start seeking and inquiring. They're looking back through the prophecies they've received, the oracles that other prophets have been given. They get on their knees and they pray and they ask God, what, Lord, what on earth is this amazing prophecy? Who is this person? When are these things going to happen? And it's revealed to them that they're not serving themselves, but you, Peter says to his readers. And these prophets had some very urgent needs for their own time. And some of them are writing while the enemy is at the very gates, pounding at the gates, breaking into the city. They're being led off to exile with hooks in their noses. They desperately needed a word from God for there and then. But these words were not for there and not for them. They were for us, Peter says. However ridiculed and despised these believers were, They were being served by the prophets centuries before. This was the ancient plan of God. And not only that, these things, this salvation, this gospel, these are things into which angels long to look. The archangels and the cherubim and seraphim are stooping down, trying to peer into these things which have been revealed to us. All these amazing things Peter is writing about, about which we can only pass through very quickly today, we know these things from the inside. 
They're not merely theoretical. We're not just reading about them in a book. These are experiences that God has given us, and we are privileged far beyond prophets and far beyond angels. Sinclair Ferguson said, our greatest temptation as believers is to think that very little has happened to us because of grace. Very little has happened to me. That's how we tend to feel. We don't have a sense of the might and the magnificence of what God has done for us in Christ. And this is the lie that Satan wants all of us to believe. He wants to keep you weak and discouraged and bowed down. Mighty things have happened to you through grace, and mighty things will happen to you through grace. And in this hostile world, and who knows what kind of hostility God is going to call us to undergo, who knows what grievous trials that are necessary for us to endure to the end and have our faith purified, but may the Holy Spirit so cause us to rejoice in Christ and what we can never lose, final, glorious, full salvation in Jesus. We can sing in the darkest and deepest gloom because God's morning is coming and it's going to be wonderful. Let's pray as the worship team comes up. Father God, Father of Jesus Christ, we rejoice today in these glorious things that you have planned for us. We thank you for this story that somehow, for some reason, we don't understand you have written us into. We pray, Lord, that you would adjust and recalibrate us to your story, to your gospel, to this glorious salvation. Give us grace to encourage one another, to remind us of the hope that we have in Christ and of how sure and certain that hope is because he himself is our living hope. Lord, we are small and weak, and we cannot sustain our own faith even for an hour. So we ask that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with that joy, unspeakable and full of glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.